Hi, everyone. Um, how are you today? I'm Christina. And I'm Danielle. And welcome to No BS. So today we're excited because as we promised in season two, we are having a bunch of guests on um, for our episodes. And today we have a very special guest. And we have Jess Rabin. And I'll explain how I know Jess. So Jess, say hi real quick. Hi. hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. So not only has Jess been like such a supporter of our podcast, um, I know Jess from TikTok, um, which Danielle does, doesn't care about, but I'm trying. I didn't like that look you just gave me. <laughs> I don't like your tone. So on TikTok, and I've talked about this before, and some of you who are listening might already know this, but there's a huge mental health community on TikTok of advocates and licensed therapists and clinical psychologists. And I met Jess through the app. And, you know, obviously we connected um, in in the group and it's kind of crazy how that all happens. <laughs> you like make friends. I didn't intend to like make friends on this app at all, but it's really kind of cool. So to meet with people who have that same mentality in mind and that is really like the normalizing of and breaking the stigma and normalizing getting treated for your mental health. So we're really excited to have Jess on today because she is bringing a completely different perspective than we've had so far in our podcast. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have Jess tell you a little bit about who she is, what she does and why what she's offering is different than than we've ever had on this show before. But Jess, we're really excited to have you on. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so like Danielle and Christina said, my name is Jess Rabin. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of South Carolina. So I graduated with my PhD in clinical psychology in 2018 and have been licensed since 2019. And I work in a children's hospital and my job is kind of I don't know, complicated in the sense that I do one and a half days outpatient, which would be in a much more like traditional therapy setting. So I work in our adolescent medicine clinic doing 45 to 60 minute traditional outpatient therapy, um, mainly with depression, anxiety, eating disorder, and LGBTQ youth. And then the other three and a half days I work medical inpatient. So a lot of times people think, oh, you work inpatient, psychiatric inpatient. No, I don't work psychiatric inpatient. I work medical inpatient. So there I work with children literally from babies to 18, 19, depending on if they get admitted to the children's hospital, mainly with medically complex medical issues, new diagnosis of a medical issue or physical traumas. So dog bites, car accidents, gunshot wounds, anything like a physical trauma that would end you up in the hospital. So on the inpatient side, it's more very like short-term focused treatment on coping with the hospitalization, coping with the trauma. Sometimes we do have our eating disorder patients there if they're not medically stable to be outpatient, but primarily it's more symptom focused and how to cope with a new diagnosis, things like that. So I get a variety of different experiences, which I love because I hate doing the same thing over and over (laughs) and over again. So this is like a, this is really interesting. So talk to us a little bit about the, the medical setting and like the, the work that you do with the like physical trauma. 
Okay. So, you know, if a kiddo comes in with a dog bite or a car accident, I'll usually get consulted to do an initial like evaluation to see how they're doing. I am the only psychologist in the children's hospital that does inpatient. And one thing about working in a medical setting is I am very lucky that they very much appreciate my services, but a lot of medical doctors are like, ah, like, trauma, mental health, anxiety, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, so usually the initial assessment is just seeing how they're coping, assessing like, are they having nightmares, things like that. And then it really depends on their length of stay. So like for some car accidents, kids are only in the hospital for a couple of days. So there it's more really focused on, you know, how's the hospitalization doing? Is there anything I can do while you're going to be here for a couple of days and make sure they're set up with resources outpatient. Um, some of our traumas are hospitalized longer. Um, so the ones that typically are hospitalized longer is gunshot wounds or really bad car accidents. So if we know it's going to be a prolonged stay, I will do more traditional therapy a couple of times a week, really focused on the trauma, anxiety, coping, assessing for acute stress disorder, and then thus PTSD, depending on how long they stay. Some of our kids will end up going to rehab afterwards, like physical rehab. And we have a rehab center as part of our hospital. It's for adults, but some of our kids will get accepted. So I'll follow them there as well, working on their progress and then making sure they get set up with services afterwards. I do follow some of my kids that I meet in the hospital outpatient, but since I work at the adolescent medicine clinic, we only see certain ages. So it really depends on ages and also where they're from because I see patients on the inpatient side from hours away. So it makes no sense for them to come to therapy with me if they have to drive two hours, for right. example. Wow. That's really intense. I was just going to say, <laughs> oh my gosh, like I knew part of that from just from talking to you, but I didn't know all of that. Like, wow. That's what people say a lot. Like, I mean, like I've had more, and this isn't on the trauma side, but more on like the like medical side, like I've had patients die and that's not easy by any means but people be like how do you do that and I'm like I don't know just like I like I know for a fact I cannot do substance abuse like I can't like I, I know I can't do that but I can do physical traumas medically complex kids all day long so I think it's just what we all have an interest in or what we feel like we're called to do so I think too, like the the style that you have as a clinician plays a big part into that like sometimes someone's style just fits really well with a certain niche area you know and it sounds like for you that's the medical trauma side and like as far as your the outpatient setting that you work in what does that look like because it's a medical center still right yes (laughs) so it's still with my same hospital it's just one of our outpatient clinics so um it's the adolescent medicine clinic I love working with adolescent for, I mean, when you go into psychology or any mental health field and you want to work with children you and adolescents, usually throughout grad school and things like that, you have to work with all ages, but adolescents are really my niche. So when this adolescent medicine clinic opened, I interviewed there as 
the psychologist. And part of that was because the doctor, the primary doctor there does a lot of LGBTQ stuff. And that is another outside of all the medical stuff. That's another niche interest of mine. I got a lot of experience working with LGBTQ youth um, during my internship, which when you get your PhD in clinical psychology, your last year of grad school is a year long clinical internship. So I got a lot of experience there and I live in South Carolina. And so there's not a lot of resources and services for LGBTQ individuals in general, but especially youth. So on the outpatient side, I, I work with trans youth, um, some non-binary and then lesbian, gay, bisexual youth. Um, and then I do see more traditional, like straight up depression, anxiety, and then eating disorders have become a niche by mm-hmm. n- not trying to be. <laughs> um, so the doctor that I work with is specifically trained in eating disorders. So they have a lot of eating disorder people come through our clinic. And when they're not medically stable for outpatient, they go inpatient. And by default, since I'm the only psychologist inpatient, I have started seeing them and will follow some outpatient, but we usually end up sending a lot of them to like residential treatment as well. So those are my four main areas of outpatient. Um, And some, like I said, I do follow some of my kids from inpatient to outpatient. So like if they do have a chronic illness or some type of trauma and they fit within the adolescent age range, I will follow up with them in our clinic. But usually they will also have some type of like comorbid depression, anxiety that they would see the MD that I work with as well. So what are... I can't even begin to think of like some of the challenges that you face on a daily yeah. basis, but like, what are some of the, just gonna ask that. the really like frustrating or like um, common challenges that you face? So not so much anymore, but I think when I first started, one of the biggest challenges was having medical doctors understand what a psychologist does and what they can and can't do. Like I can think of examples and I won't give like too many, too many specifics because HIPAA, but like one example that comes to mind was like, well, this mom slept through her child's alarms. Like you need to talk to her and figure out like how, like to get her to not sleep through his alarms and do his care. And I was like, that's not (laughs) what I do. (laughs) Or like, they don't understand, like, I just can't make people talk that don't want to talk. And Mm -hmm. that I know I mentioned earlier, um, briefly when talking about like living in the South and like my LGBTQ clients, but there's also a stigma against mental health in general. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, and I've like perfected how I introduce myself now and I don't get as much pushback, but a lot of times like you go into the hospital, people are getting medical care. They send in the psychologist and people are like, do you think I'm crazy? Like what, what's going on? So I always frame, I introduce myself as a psychologist and I basically just say, it's really stressful being in the hospital for anyone. And like, especially if it's not a trauma, trauma makes a lot more sense. But like, if it's like a chronic medical condition and they just wanted me to come in to check on you, to see how um, you're doing, if there's anything I can do to support you. Um, That took a while to kind of get the language down because a lot of times people would just shut down and be like, psychologist, I'm not crazy, or 
there there are still times that people will say like I don't want to talk to a psychologist I don't want to talk to a shrink you know but they'll talk to the chaplain and we have a chaplain there and that's absolutely fine like I work with him closely so those are some of the challenges some of the challenges in COVID is so how our hospital works is that kids are allowed to have one caregiver in their room at a time they're allowed to have two caregivers total like switch off and but since it's COVID the parents can't always like leave to go somewhere because hospital restrictions so trying to get like talking to a teenager and like mom literally has no place to go can be difficult most parents are like we'll find something to do or like we'll go into the bathroom and turn on the water or something that's one sometimes follow-up is hard especially when we're working with medicaid clients because i mean you all i'm assuming it's the same in in jersey that unless you work for like a hospital system community mental health a lot of therapists don't take medicaid because they don't reimburse well and a lot of the individuals i see especially with like chronic medical conditions do have medicaid so then finding a therapist for them is really hard or we refer them to like community mental health and honestly that's not always the best for the like chronic care kiddos because unless you have specific training and medical illnesses it's hard to you know treat mental health specifically related to a medical illness if you don't have an understanding of that um and then i mean there's little challenges like scheduling and by scheduling i mean the lack of scheduling Mm. because you're in a hospital (laughs) and people are like going down to the or for surgery or like they're seeing like pt and ot and psychiatry and all these other specialties and it's just like so some days I like end up seeing two kids, even though I've tried all day to see all my kids because I go and they're sleeping or they're <laughs> getting yep. a, you know, lab done or somebody else is in the room. And so you have to be flexible. I can imagine that you had mentioned at first that um, like medical doctors are not always well versed in mental health and what, what it is exactly that you do. And I can imagine that that's a pretty frustrating situation. I mean, Christina and I had worked in an environment for a little while that had medical staff as well as um, mental health staff. And it was it always felt like this war between the mental health side (laughs) and the medical side to the extent that, like, I I almost wondered uh, how many issues could have been prevented if we all just, like, got on the same page. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No, we so like I said it was a struggle at the beginning and still is kind of a struggle with like people that don't really know me. But one thing I've had to learn because I'm not a very outspoken person. Um, so I had to learn to like set those boundaries. Like I'm thinking of one kiddo I got consulted on, which was a trauma. So and it was appropriate in that sense, but she was a toddler and mute. And I was like, I there's therapy wise. I am not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm not certified in play therapy. Like I can work with the parents, but I, they're like, and I had to like set that boundary or like 
a lot of times they would ask me to see the parents and I'm like, if the parents are struggling with their kids trauma or kids medical diagnosis, I'm happy to do that. But if the parent themselves has mental health concerns, I will provide them with resources and learn to set those boundaries. But going back to what you just said, Danielle, about being on the same page. So for a lot of our more like chronic kids and by chronic, I mean, stay in the hospital for a longer period of time. Um, we will have team meetings and especially for our kids who have more psychiatric issues. So like our eating disorder kids, we always have a, um, we call them MDTs, like multidisciplinary team meetings um, within the first week of them being hospitalized. So it would be like me, adolescent medicine, psychiatry, case management, child life, the primary team just to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, and that has helped a lot. And then in our PICU, our pediatric intensive care unit, we have meetings every Tuesday for our long-term kiddos. So anybody that's been there over a week to make sure we're on the same page. And that has definitely helped. We're not always on the same page, but that has definitely helped having some type of structure because yeah, like you said, so many things could be prevented if people would just yeah, I mean, all things, um, we were things that that both Christine and I have been involved in before. Yeah. It's, it's it's positive in a lot of ways, and sometimes like I hate to say a waste of time, but like it kind of felt like no. Sometimes it really was. I mean, it was like you know it's you can't out there. you can't teach <laughs> like eight years worth of psych information to a medical person who's not interested. Yeah. You know, but sometimes those, it, they really are very intertwined and it's difficult to kind of like tease out what belongs to what area, you know, and but, when people aren't open to that, it's a, de- a detriment to the client for sure. Yeah. And I agree. Like I can understand what Jess was saying about trying to explain to someone what it is that you do. Like sometimes, you know, and, and I can't, I'm not talking poorly on, you know, my former uh, colleagues or whatever, because a lot of the medical staff, you know, they, I didn't have a problem with them, but you know, occasionally you would get someone and they would say, well, I just don't understand why they're acting that way. Why can't you do something? And I'm like, I can't perform a miracle. They're like, I don't know what they, like they expected, like as a therapist, we were supposed to be able to just run in there and fix it. Like such and such is freaking out and okay. They're angry. There's also, they're coming off drugs. There's also the piece of like, and we were working in a residential setting where the same nurses and the same patients were seeing each other all the time. And so if, you know, a, a nurse and a patient didn't hit it off the first time, there was like this battle between them. So they were in like, they forever hated each other. And it was like, there was no, well, I can't say no, there was, it didn't appear that there was any understanding on the staff end of things that these people are unwell and whether that's physical or mental, emotional, it doesn't really change. We still work with that, you know, instead it, it almost became personal. And I mm-hmm. think that that's kind of where the separation, the major separation is between the way that, in my experience, mental health professionals operate and the way that medical professionals operate is that we're kind of trained not to take things personally, where medical professionals are trained on medical and not necessarily like the emotional factor. Yes. The human factor of everything. Yeah. Well, and one thing too, when you both were talking that I've seen a lot too, which I appreciate, but it's also like, okay, now that 
you all are getting more well-versed in mental health, like sometimes if they can't find an answer, they're like, oh, it must be anxiety. And I'm like, okay, anxiety is probably <laughs> a component, but there's probably still some medical stuff um, going on. Or like, oh, it, like you were saying, Christina, like, oh, it's all behavioral. And I'm like, mm, no, let's think of, you know, like trauma, for example, and how that's going to impact. I mean, we have a patient right now, and I'm not going to go into that story, but like, I mean, and a very difficult patient. But like every, I keep just telling the medical professionals, I was like, I know it's frustrating, but this is a patient that has gone through a lot of trauma and how it's, man- and the, the manifestation is the trauma. It's unhealed and I will try to work through it. But also that's the hard thing about working like medical inpatient is you don't know how long you're going to see them. So like, I rarely, if ever do like intense trauma work, medical inpatient, because they literally could get discharged the next day. And then it's like, that's not healthy. (laughs) Yeah. You're just kind of like keeping them stable. Yes. No, they won't talk about it. I'll listen, but I'm never going to push talking about like, especially if it's unrelated to why they're hospitalized, if that makes sense. Like if they disclose a trauma history, I'm not going to unpack that in the hospital. We kind of dealt with that when we were in, not, not when we were in LTR, not when we were in long-term, but when we were in resi, like sometimes you would get based on insurance coverage, someone coming in for maybe two weeks and, you know, they start to reveal. Well, and sometimes we didn't even know. I mean, there was times people were there for, you know, a week and their insurance cut them. And we were like, well, what do you mean they're leaving? Like we have no aftercare set up. We've barely gotten to know these people. Like there's no way that we can find like an appropriate plan for them this quick. And then it became like a negotiation game with the insurance company try to give us at least another day yeah but i as far as like listening is concerned because i remember people would be like okay well don't talk about their trauma with them we can't close that okay but i'm gonna listen and then i'm going to refer them okay so such and such has trauma so you know what trauma-informed therapists do we know on the outside that deals with this issue like that's something for the future but i'm going to listen to that yeah yeah and insurance could be a whole nother discussion we have. Like I, that's yeah. a whole nother episode. <laughs> yeah, we've said multiple times before. It's just like, you know, it, insurance serves its purpose for sure, and like we need it, mm-hmm. and it's, it's really great. But they also are not having that face to face human experience. I don't know. They're just right. seeing the notes come through. Oh, which... I know. I, we had a patient discharge. Let's see. Uh, earlier this week and yesterday I found like I was happened to be talking to the case manager and she was like his last day got denied like just one day of the hospitalization I'm like how what <laughs> like based off what mm-hmm. that doesn't even make sense how they can just I don't know I don't know that's a whole nother we're going down rabbit hole I, I yes I and I I'm right there with you I feel your pain I understand you you won't even you don't even have to go there because we could literally go on for another like two hours about that and just share ranting stories. So I have a question specific to Justin, what brought you to this skill set? Because I, I mean, I know you went to school for this. Like what made you decide to, to choose this, like to go? Cause I know when you're coming out of school and you're not really sure of what you want to do. Like I always say like, you know, being in substance abuse residential chose me because that's where I interned. What about this um, particular area? Because it is so specific because it's children's hospital. It's not just a general hospital. You're specifically dealing with children. What about this attracted you? 
So I always knew I wanted to work with kids and adolescents. I don't really know why. Well, okay. I do kind of know why. So background of how I got into psychology. So when I was, so when I was 12, I decided I was going to be a chemistry major and go to pharmacy school. And if anybody knows me, like once I set a life plan, that's what I'm going to do. So at 12 years old, I like made this life plan, (laughs) which is ridiculous, Um, (laughs) but whatever. And then when I was a freshman in college and I was a chemistry major, you know, pursuing my 12 year old self life plan, my cousin died by suicide. So I ended up like volunteering for a nonprofit, working on a suicide hotline. And my junior year, I switched my major to psychology. And I was like, you know, I want to do something with, you know, suicide prevention and intervention. And my cousin was 21 at the time. So he wasn't in the like children, adolescent range, but young adult range. I got my master's degree, uh, a terminal master's because I applied to grad school off a whim. Do not recommend that. Um, (laughs) Took a year off, taught, got some more experience working with children. Um, I worked at a wilderness therapy camp doing assessments and then applied to grad school. And so when I applied to my PhD programs, my full intent was actually to go into academia. Like I had no intent of doing clinical work. I just wanted to teach and do research. And at the time I was like, I'm going to teach and do research on suicide, which is exactly what I did throughout grad school. All of my research in grad school is on suicide. But when you go to a clinical psych PhD program, you have to do clinical work. And the program I went to was primary care and or integrated primary care focus. So I got to take classes with med students, nurses, pharmacy students, a bunch of different individuals in the medical field. And I was like, okay, well, I guess if academia doesn't work out, this is really cool. I like working in a team. And so my clinical experiences throughout grad school were in different like medical settings. So like I worked in pediatric primary care. My internship was in a children's hospital and throughout grad school, I was like, hmm, you know, I like research and academia, but I kind of like this clinical (laughs) kind of stuff. So I did my internship at Virginia Treatment Center for Children, working psychiatric inpatient and then medical inpatient. And then South Carolina requires you to do a postdoctoral fellowship. So I applied for the fellowship at my hospital that I work at now. Um, And that was basically to get us back to this area because my husband's from this area. So that's not really any like grand (laughs) insight. But I realized I really liked working in a team. I liked working in a medical setting because it's fast paced and different every day. Going through grad school confirmed I do not like working with adults. I had to for um, like one rotation and it was just not my thing. Um, I think in grad school, part of that was because I was so young and I felt imposter syndrome. I also looked very young for my age, but I just didn't care for working with adults. And I felt like I could make a bigger impact working with children and teens. This is kind of like a, it's not morbid, but maybe a pessimistic view. Like, I feel like you can intervene with children and teens to set them up for success where like in adulthood and you all work with adults. So you can tell me if I'm totally off base. It's more like trying to undo the things that have already happened in the past versus like preventing things from happening in the future. Yeah. I was um, 
for a short time doing intensive in home therapy. And for those of you who don't know, basically it through like state medical insurance, you qualify for off the bat eight weeks of free two hours a week of in-home therapy. And so I actually went to my clients' homes, uh, whether it was like their, their home home, their foster home, you know, whatever. And um, I would provide you know, stabilization type therapy and then set them up with or help set them up with aftercare. But I had the same feeling when I started doing the in-home therapy of that, you know, I've been working with adults for so long who have this plethora of issues where, you know, I'm now I'll be working with kids who ha- are being raised in similar environments and like maybe just being exposed to somebody new who mm-hmm. has a different perspective can change the whole trajectory of their life. Yeah. No. And I mean, I, yeah, that's how I feel. And I also think too, just my personality works better with children and teens than adults. No, we talk about that all the time though. Like you, your, your personality and your skill set, like that is it's specific. And we talk about that, like in just in private practice and finding a therapist, I might not be a good fit for everybody and that's okay. And that happens a lot. And that's why, you know, we encourage people all the time to like, let me know if like, I'm not a good fit for you because we know what we're not a good fit with. We, we know that, like, I know, I know that I am not, I don't particularly care to work with younger children. I love working with teenagers for a lot of those reasons of, I want to not let them be hot messes when they get, you know, like, get, let's, let's start working on that now. Like, let's start this now. Let's work on our insecurities and self-esteem now before that follows us. But I completely understand that. And I give you guys like, I, I personally, my skill set is not children. And I probably wouldn't see someone under the age of 14 or that's not in high school or of the, of that age. So, I mean, that's, I think that's just being responsible clinicians, like knowing mm-hmm. what we're knowing, what we're going to, like, that's why we go through internships and um, all of these trainings to understand what it is that are, where we, where we're our best fit. No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, like you said, it's being responsible, but I think it also shows having insight. Cause like one of my biggest pet peeves, and this is, tangentially related is like when I go on like psychology today or some other thing and like people will like present themselves as working with every single age range every single presenting problem every single like modality and I'm like it one it's impossible to be competent in all of those ever but it's like we all have different personality and that's why like there's so many of us there needs to be more of us but you know if the therapist is not a good fit, there's going to be a therapist that's a good fit for you elsewhere. Like I said earlier, I know I could not work with substance abuse. I am not well-versed in personality disorders other than borderline because a lot, like once you get to 16, 17, 18, (laughs) you start seeing more um, symptoms present. But if it was a full-fledged diagnosis, that is not something that's within my wheelhouse like I can do traits and dbt skills but I'm not you know trained in traditional dbt or like psychosis is not something I'm competent in or I feel like I would do well with so that's something I would refer out for and so it's not only being responsible but I think it's having good insight and recognizing your strengths and weaknesses 
And that's something that I think a lot of people in the public don't realize is that we we do have these types of conversations with ourselves, with supervisors, colleagues. We I just had an issue, and I as soon as I got here, I I said I got to run something by you real quick before we get started because I made a decision and I just need to say it out loud, whatever, just to get that insight. And, and then this goes back to like the whole stigma of what is what is a mental health professional under the big umbrella of mental health professionals? What is it that we actually do? We're we're not expected to be able to fix everything. We have the things that we that we are comfortable with that are that are. Are able to provide for, and I think a lot of people don't see that. Like they don't understand like what goes on behind the scenes. They think that they can call a, a therapist or a psychologist and whatever, and say, "Okay, well, this is my issue. Why can't you work with that?" Well, okay, because this isn't my my niche. This isn't like what I do. And I'm very specific. Like I work with a lot of eating disorder clients. I I also eating disorder and addiction fall under the same umbrella as far as like the thought emotion behavior process is concerned but i make it very clear to people like i am not an eating disorder specialist so if that is something that you're looking for and you want to go see a psychologist that can give you that evaluation and give you then by all means i can refer you to people whatever and i make it very clear what my skill set is and how i approach things but i don't think that people see that i don't think that they know that well I think a lot of the public is really un under i shouldn't say uh under educated on the world of mental health because it is really recent that people are really accepting that this is mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and that you don't have to be quote unquote crazy right. to see a clinician for mental health. But I think that there's just not a whole lot of education out there. And so you do get those patients in the hospital who, when you walk in Jess and, and they're like, well, you know, you're going to fix me. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't see, I don't need to see another therapist leave here because I see you or doctors who are like, you know, help this person not sleep through her son's alarms. Like people just don't fully understand the extent of it. And there's so much, there's so much science that goes along with the thought, feeling, behavior connection. And I just, you know, not that I would expect the general public to understand all of that all the time, but you know, you have to give your clinicians a little bit of credit and, mm-hmm. and think of them the same way that you would think of, you know, a, a cardiologist right. or a hematologist or any other specialty doctor, right. right? Well, and that's one thing going back to a question you asked me earlier, Danielle, just kind of like some struggles or challenges is because I am the only psychologist in the hospital a lot of times, and this is where I've had to learn boundary setting, people will be like, oh, so you're going to follow up with them. And I'm like, this is not actually like, either one, my area of specialty, or two, they could be better served and more quickly served and more frequently served in the community. So, like, I will follow up with our chronic, like, illness kiddos unless they already have a therapist or the parents want them to see someone else because there's not a lot of specific therapists in the area who have training specifically in chronic medical conditions. But, like, a lot of the trauma patients I see, I do not follow up with them outpatient because – I know there are so many other therapists in the community and closer to them that are much more trauma informed and could do just as well, if not better of a job, treating them, getting them in quicker and more frequently because I'm only outpatient a day and a half a week. So I'm at the beginning, like when I was trying to build up my caseload, I took more of like whoever, but I think that, you know, I like that you brought up like cardiologists, hematologists, because for some reason people think, and I mean, maybe it's just because we don't say like, 
I don't know, label ourselves as like, I am this type of therapist. I am this type of therapist, but like you wouldn't go to a cardiologist for a broken foot. So right. you need to go to like a trauma informed therapist for trauma. You wouldn't go to one that specializes in ADHD. So right. I think that's also on us to better educate the public or also just present ourselves. Like these are our, these are my specialties and you know, I'm glad you reached out to me, but I think you'd be better served with X, Y, and Z. Let me refer you. Yeah, to yeah else. I mean, get that first contact, and whether it's you know scheduling an appointment or a first session, as like your original like point of contact and and first resource. That might be your like original connection to other people. Like I might not come to you for depression because you work in a hospital setting with you know chronic illness, but I could come to you and say, this is what I need. Do you know anybody that you trust? And then, then I know that if I'm trusting you, I'm going to trust your recommendation. And I may be more open-minded to whatever, you know, referral you give me. And that could already start off a therapeutic relationship on a positive note. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So just one more quick, like before, you know, we wrap up, because Danielle and I talk a lot about breaking the stigma. And I know, I know from just, you know, obviously being one of your social media followers, I know you talk a lot about the same things too. What are some of the biggest concerns that you have, or I guess um, things, because you mentioned the medical part. Is there anything else that you want to educate the public on as far as like stigmas that are concerned within the mental health field or people who have mental health issues? That's a loaded question I could probably (laughs) talk about. I feel like coming out of my mouth that it was like, wow, this is like part two. No, I mean, I think so to emphasize something that Danielle already said, like you don't have to be crazy to see a um, mental health professional. And that's one thing I definitely try to normalize, especially in the hospital, because a lot of people don't go to a medical hospital and expect to see a psychologist. So like I said earlier, the way I frame it, you know, being hospitalized is stressful. And my role is to see how to best support you. So whether you're going through, you know, a stressful time, an acute illness, whatever it is, you know, it's okay to reach out for help if it's too overwhelming. The other kind of area of stigma that comes to mind, just as somebody that works with LGBTQ youth and in the South and where it's highly like religious, that it's not a choice and you can't pray it away. So that's something I've definitely had to like talk to families about a lot. Um, Luckily, I would say most of my patients have supportive parents because that's, or guardians, because that's how they ended up in therapy in the first place, but it's not all that way. So, you know, even if you're listening and you have your own beliefs, you can still love and support somebody and just be open to understanding and being educated before passing judgment. So those will be my two. That, and that part two is like a whole nother episode, Jess. So, well, <laughs> soon, but just stay tuned for coming back <laughs> to talk about yeah, that. Not, like, not soon. <laughs> no. Maybe like season three, but definitely that that's such a, a, a I'm so glad you brought that up because that's like a huge topic. Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Well, Jess, we really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us about some of what you do. So if people wanted to reach out and find your stuff directly, where do they go? 
So I am primarily for social media on Instagram and TikTok at Jessica Lee PhD. So Lee is L-E-I-G-H. Um, I like it because it rhymes. <laughs> and then I also have my own podcast and it's called Psych Talk. So you can find that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much anywhere that you can find podcasts. So awesome. Yeah, her podcast is great. I've definitely listened to a few episodes. So definitely check that well, out. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. So good luck with the last, hopefully, week of your pregnancy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And I didn't go into labor while doing this interview. So that's a win, right? Yeah, I was so hoping. Yeah. It would be a like dramatic moment. Like, this would be, like, wanting the drama. Exciting. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We're so happy. We're so happy. She's, like, so dumb with her. <laughs> like, you see my house? <laughs> We're so happy to have you on. I, you know, it was a pleasure being able to interview and be able to talk to you mm-hmm. a little bit more. I don't, I mean, obviously we interact a lot on um, social media, but we don't ever get to like truly sit down and have like a conversation like this. So it was, it was great. And you gave such great information and hopefully this resonates with people who, you know, ha- have kids or um, have been hospitalized and, and understand like what goes on in that atmosphere and your role in that atmosphere, that there is that help out there. Yeah. Also, hopefully people are who are listening are getting the message that like, just because a clinician doesn't fit the first time, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that that has to be the end. Like, exactly. You know, here's three mental health professionals all s- sitting here doing this podcast to do right. all different things at this point, you know? So yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're interested in looking for a clinician, um, stay tuned at the end of our podcast for some resources along with, as always, the National Suicide Lifeline. So, Jess, thanks again. Thank you and for having me. It was great. We look forward to, uh, to collaborating again in the future. Yeah, so. for sure. Definitely. All right, guys, stay tuned for our next episode, and um, we'll see you then. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or desire to self-harm, please reach out to the National Suicide Lifeline at 800-273-8255 for 24-hour support.